pray. <clears throat> Lord, first this morning, we want to lift up family fellowship. I want to pray for Paul Blue and for his family. Pray for his marriage, Lord, that it is rich and um, he's enjoying his wife and delighted with her. Pray that she is looking to him for leadership and shepherding and that they are a um, healthy couple and family that are captivated with Christ as their Lord and Savior. And uh, pray for Paul that his study is just overwhelming. Pray that as he's spending time with you each week in the Word that he is captivated and just undone and that he's enduring in sound doctrine and that that is uh, having an overflow into the pulpit and that his people are feasting together on good nourishment and that uh, family fellowship is growing in depth and breadth. And uh, Lord, I pray in whatever way that we can stand alongside this people and the family fellowship, I pray that we will do that and that you'll guard us, guard our hearts and theirs and all the other Christian churches in this community from a spirit of competition but a true spirit of partnership and a shared Lord that's so abundant and ample and a gospel that's so rich and uh, surprising and a stewardship with a field that's so um, really seemingly unsown with a good, healthy seed of uh, the true gospel. And um, Lord, I pray for just a shared burden and pray for a, whether it's tangible partnership or whether intangible that... Uh, as workmates, our neighbors and friends, that we are standing alongside this people. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for this people and pray that you will find us attentive, that you'll find us worshipers and not practitioners. Pray that you'll find us um, captive and uh, marveling, wondering. Um, pray as a result of our time together this morning that you'll find us in a deeper pursuit of Christ, deeper satisfaction with his work. And so it changes from the inside out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 12. <clears throat> I want to share with you before we begin this message this morning. This is a worshiper's message, not a practitioner's message. I'm learning more and more that there may not be such thing as a true practitioner's message, but I'll share with you early on in our ministry here, I would have really fretted over this morning's message, feeling like, man, we've got to have three steps to something. We've got to walk away with three points to, you know, and they all have to start with the same letter, and um, there's got to be a poem to bring it all together, and I don't think we've ever had a poem, but I really, a real pursuit of this application, this mindset that says, if it doesn't work, then it must not be. That's the practitioner mindset. That's really the Western mindset. Is it, does it function? If it functions, then that's great. But we're not called to be practitioners. We're called to be worshipers. And worshipers don't ask the question, does it work? Worshipers ask the question, does it worship? And as worshipers, what I'm hoping that we can do in these next few minutes is just dine on a few verses of John chapter 12 and that we can enjoy our Christ that's unfolded in those verses and that he'll change us from the inside out. The cool thing for the worshiper as compared to the practitioner. Practitioners so focused on, does this work? Does this help me? Does, how can I apply this? That they may miss out on something that the worshiper gets, that the worshiper gets a change that starts right here, that manifests itself right here in practice and application. So it's kind of working from the inside out. So I encourage you this morning 
to know that if you leave here this morning feeling like, man, I didn't get three things that I can go apply and leave here frustrated, that you might be leaning in the direction of being a practitioner. That's the same sort of mindset that can't appreciate a Van Gogh, for example, or a Frederick Remington bronze. Well, what does it do? <laughs> Is it going to make my car run better? That's, that's, that's not a worshiper. A worshiper enjoys that truth. So this morning, my, my encouragement is to leave here this morning as a worshiper having a more robust view of our Lord, having a more biblical, truthful view of His work, what He accomplished, the sort of Savior that He is, and um, that hopefully you'll leave here this morning with that on your hearts. Let me give you a kind of a plan of where we're going this morning. We're going to begin in verse 12 of chapter 12. And we're going to move through verse 19. And what I'm going to do is we're going to do uh, what I call low crawling, where we're going to kind of unpack verses as we go along and kind of disassemble some of the, these passages. And then I have three so what. There are three things, but they don't all start with the same letter. And they're not application points either. They're really three so what considerations for the people of God. So what? Now that we've seen Christ in this whole new way, how does this, um, how, how can we uh, respond to this? So that three, con- three considerations for us once we've low-crawled through. So let's begin in verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, <clears throat> this is on Sunday. Jesus has just dined with Lazarus and probably Simon the leper's home the day before. Those are the first um, eight verses or so that we camped out for so long there where Mary anoints his feet with nard and also his head, we know from other accounts, anoints him with the nard and uh, is scolded by the disciples and then protected by Christ. That just happened the day before, although we've been there for a few months. It's just yesterday. So now Sunday, now's what would be called Palm Sunday, a Sunday that we've probably celebrated for years around Easter time. That's this morning. The next day, Palm Sunday, The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The Luke account of this triumphant entry, or triumphal entry, it's in all four Gospels, but the Luke account tells us that the whole multitude of his disciples were traveling with him. So here in this first verse, in verse 12 and 13, there's kind of a collision between two different groups. There's the crowd that comes out to meet him from Jerusalem. There would have probably been over 100,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. Maybe many more than that. But Jerusalem couldn't support that many people, so they would have been kind of spilled out onto the outskirts of town. Jesus would have come via the east side of town through the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives, and likely people were camped out like a big KOA campground all around Jerusalem. And that's one crowd. The other crowd is the crowd that was moving with him, the multitudes that are the the, uh, multitude of disciples that moved with him as he's going toward Jerusalem. You can imagine that this would have been a wonderful day for Israel. Passover is a cool time for the nation of Israel in the first place. But this day when this Jesus came toward town and all these people, these multitudes who'd heard about him raising somebody from the stone-cold dead, came out to meet him, combined with the crowd that was already following with him, this would have been an awesome time with all these people surrounded around Christ. Israel had a lot to hope for in this time. Israel wanted a king that would liberate them from 
Rome. I was talking with Christy yesterday, and I really felt feeling frustrated that I can't escort us into some sort of illustration where we can relate to what it must, it must have been like for the Jew in this time under the heavy hand of Rome. And I thought, well, that, I guess the best thing that I can relate to is to imagine if someone came in your home. Let's start there. Let's make it real personal. To imagine that someone came in your home and they took everything that you owned. They took your checkbook, your computer, your food, the keys to your car. And while they gave you limited access to all those things, they still essentially owned it all. You'd ask permission for everything. You can imagine being the Americans, the free Americans that we are, that that's pretty unsavory. And you can imagine if someone did that in someone's home or if someone did that in someone's community, that we would fight like Marines to be liberated from that sort of oppression because that's no freedom at all. These guys were looking and begging for the same thing. Their burden is not unlike what our burden and really, frankly, what a lot of our prayers would be. Send us a deliverer. And we could pray Godward just like they did. Send us a deliverer to liberate us from this oppression. This was a hopeful time for the nation of Israel. I was thinking what it must have been like as you're standing on that road and you're looking over the crest of the Mount of Olives to see Jesus come over that crest and the goosebumps as you hear hundreds of thousands of people shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This would have been an awesome time. They sang Psalm 118. Let's go there. Keep your finger in John 12 because we'll be coming back and forth to John 12. But flip back to Psalm 118. I want to show you this psalm and give you a little insight into the context. The song that they sang there in John 12 is from Psalm 118. And it's a song they sang around Passover. Let me give you a little taste of the passage, and then I'll share with you the context. Beginning in verse 25 of Psalm 118. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us is a translation, or really an English translation, of Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means, O save. So it's really the same cry and the same song here. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The context of this psalm, Psalm 118, is that someone had attempted to overthrow David and his reign. And David was preserved and returned to his reign. And he comes to the temple to sacrifice. And the crowd is calling out, Blessed is he, that David, that king, that rightful king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Come on back in the temple, the place where you ought to be, your rightful place, O save. It's the song on the lips of Israel right now as they're begging for a king, a new king, a prophesied king, to liberate them from their oppression. I'll tell you something else that happened that day. Turn back to John 12. Actually, go to Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. Something else that happened that day as Jesus entered Jerusalem is not only did a king enter Jerusalem, a prophesied king, But unbeknownst to them, a priest enters Jerusalem. I'm learning to really camp out on every word. That every word of this Bible is something that we can enjoy and savor and chew on. And I've been studying palm branches. 
I don't, I don't think it's, it, it's not coincidental that these people are waving palm branches as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And what, here's what I found about palm branches. I found that for the nation of Israel, this was their national symbol of patriotism. Essentially, it's their version of the American flag. You know, we had our little, little parade here out on Park Street and waving our flags on July the 4th. This is a, a, a bigger version of that, but I know it's hard to believe. A bigger version of that where they're waving palm branches in a time of is, is a, a Jewish nationalism. And something else that these palm branches represented is found in chapters 40 and 41 of Ezekiel. Chapters 40 and 41 are prophetic passages about this new temple that is to come. The nation of Israel is in exile. They're uh, going to be returned to Israel, Israel eventually or returned to the promised land eventually. And these are details, these two chapters point to the specifics of this temple that is to come. It has a real application, then also a prophetic application. Lots of these images come out in Revelation for the new Jerusalem that we'll all live in someday. Look at chapter 40, verse 16. I want you to pay attention to some of the furniture, the furniture of the temple. And the gateway had windows all around it, narrowing inwards toward the side rooms and toward their jams. And likewise, the vestibule had windows all around inside, and on the jams were palm trees. This is the east gate to the temple and the temple courts, and it's lined with palm trees. Let's look at the north gate, verse 22. And its windows, its vestibule, and its palm trees were of the same size as those of the gate that faced toward the east. Look at the south gate, verse 26. And there were seven steps leading up to it, and its vestibule was before them. And it had palm trees on its jams, one on the other side. I want you to hear, I'm going to share with you some more pictures of these palm trees in the, in the temple. And I, want, I don't want you to hear redundant, I already got that. I want you to recognize that God is redundant, because He wants us to get it as we're appreciating the furniture of the tabernacle and these palm trees that surround this tabernacle, look to Jerusalem on this Sunday, this Palm Sunday, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And look at the palm branches everywhere that are being waved as the high priest reenters the tabernacle and the temple for the final sacrifice. Look at verse 31. This is the inner court. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its jams. And its stairway had eight steps. Look at verse 34. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and it had palm trees on its jams on either side, and its stairway had eight steps. Verse 37. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and it had palm trees. Do you hear them waving on this Palm Sunday? Do you hear people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord, waving palm branches everywhere. Everywhere you look, the furniture of the temple. Chapter 41, verse 18. This is the inner temple. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. Verse 25, And the do- on the doors of the nave were carved cherubim and palm trees such as were carved on the walls. And there was a canopy of wood in front of the vestibule outside, and there were narrow windows and palm trees on either side. I want you to appreciate that this isn't 
a stretch that the temple and the furniture inside and out is surrounded and covered with palm trees as Jesus enters Jerusalem at the hail of the people carrying palm branches. Keep your finger in John chapter 12. Remember, I told you to do that. And look at Luke chapter 19. I want to show you that not only is the king coming to Jerusalem this day, but the high priest is coming to Jerusalem. And look where he goes. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. This, this is the Luke version that's just... Give the same, it's just given the same details or, or the same account of his entrance into Jerusalem. And look where he goes in verse 45. He's just come into Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. This king is entering Jerusalem this day, but also the high priest is entering Jerusalem this day. And he spent the week there at the temple teaching. He spent the week there at the temple readying himself to offer the sacrifice and readying himself to be the sacrifice. As he's entering Jerusalem this day, it's the ultimate high priest and the ultimate king is entering as priest and sacrifice at the same time. Let's look at John chapter 12, verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Once you know that in this age and in the age before, the four or five hundred years or so before that, that the appropriate vehicle for transportation for a king would be a man of war. A stallion, a horse, and here Jesus enters on a donkey's colt. Alexander the Great would have entered Athens on a war horse. Caesar Augustus would have entered Rome on a war horse. Hannibal would have entered Carthage on a war horse. Yet Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. You can imagine how small a donkey's colt would be, and you can imagine the size of a grown man and recognize that his feet likely dragged as he's riding this donkey's colt into Jerusalem. It would be like the president coming to Greenville. Okay, we go out to meet him. The rangers are out in full force, the state troopers. We've got all the, all the escorts everywhere, all over town, and everywhere in between the airport and here. But then the president rolls in, not in a limo and not with the entourage, but he rolls in in a Ford Pinto. I'm dating myself there. He rolls in in an AMC Gremlin to give you another ugly, pitiful car or a Yugo. He rolls in there in just the wrong thing. But the reality is these guys should have expected this. This passage here where he says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. is from Zechariah chapter 9. If they'd been eating their Old Testament, they would have been ready for this. It was the only testament then, so they should have been attentive to it. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's addressing daughters. Fear not, daughter of Zion. So appropriately, the use of daughter in this passage, the use of daughter throughout the Bible, is like whenever my son Daniel gets in trouble and I address him as Daniel Charles McGraw. 
you better straighten up. It's the language of being crossways. I bet, parents, you've done it with your kids where you use their whole name. That's what God doing here when he says, daughters, if you're crossways with me and I'm about to fix this, I'm about to reconcile this, daughters. And this king and high priest comes humbly on a donkey's colt. Verse 16 of chapter 12. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I want you to notice how Jesus responded to their misunderstanding. Notice just the verse before we were looking a moment ago. It says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. They just hailed him. They just said, you're the king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And the reflection on the original language is that as a result of that, he went and found a donkey's colt. In response to their praise, instead of going to find a war horse, he goes to find a donkey's colt because they misunderstood. He wants them to see lowliness. He wants them to see humility. He wants them to see his feet dragging down the road, entering Jerusalem. I've wondered what the disciples must have thought. I mean, imagine following Jesus day by day for three years, going everywhere he goes. You've seen him feed the multitudes. You've seen the multitudes. And in John chapter 6, it says they wanted to make him king. And he was, he was down. He was disappointed about that. He actually retreated off to the hillside by himself and sent the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. That's when he walked on the water. He didn't want to be king. Not their kind of king. They wanted to make him king there. So you can imagine what the disciples are thinking. They're thinking, here's our moment. All of Jerusalem's coming out to meet him. They're saying, Jesus, they love you, man. You're the man, Jesus. They're going to make you king this week on Passover. How about that? And we're going to sit in your court. I can taste the big turkey legs right now. And you, the goblets. Isn't that what kings use? I can taste what it's going to be like to be in your court. And Jesus, please don't ride that donkey's colt. You look like a goober. Let's go find you a limo. Let's go find you a war horse appropriately because they love you, man. They're all over you. I was thinking that just the day before he defended Mary, he said, no, leave her alone. She's anointing my body for burial. That today they must be thinking, Jesus, you're so crazy. They're not going to kill you. Look at them. The throngs are coming out and cheering you, Jesus. They're not going to kill you. But the disciples weren't the only ones that misunderstood Jesus. The throngs that cheered for him did not understand him either. So he rode a donkey's colt with feet dragging to say, I'm a different sort of king. I'm not the deliverer that you guys are looking for. I'm a contrary king. The Luke account tells us that rather than raising his hand, keep your finger in John 12 and turn back to Luke 19. Rather than raising his hands in triumph, I bet you've seen the boxer before who's won the match and everybody's cheering for him. He raises his hands. Yeah! He's embracing their applause. Bring it. I deserve it. That's not the way Jesus is. Let's look at what he does. First of all, we know he climbs onto a donkey's colt inappropriately, looking like a goober. How could you do that, Jesus? But then in Luke chapter 19, let's see what else he does in verse 41. 
And when he drew near, that's when he drew near to Jerusalem, and he saw the city, he wept over it. Come on, Jesus, what are you doing? They're all out. They're going to make you king. It's going to be an awesome week. Get off the donkey's colt and quit weeping. But he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You want peace, but you don't even have a sense of the sort of peace that's being brought to you today. But they are now hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because, here's why, here's their problem. You did not know the time of your visitation. Why would he cry? Because they didn't get it. They didn't see the sort of Savior that He is. They didn't see the sort of contrary King that He he is. And they did not understand the time of their visitation. And the evidence of that is they nailed Him to a cross only a few days later. The same mouths that shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The same lips, the same teeth, the same tongue that created the sound a few days later said, Crucify Him! They didn't get it. And it's proof that you can praise him for all the wrong reasons. And it rates his tears rather than his smile. Verse 17 of John 12. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. That's the third crowd. We've met two crowds already. These three three crowds collide today. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. They said, man, this Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. Let's go meet him. That's the second crowd we've met already. So the Pharisees, seeing the excitement of all three crowds, you can imagine. Man, all these three crowds are colliding on the Passover. And they're all singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, this is a bummer. Listen to what they say to each other. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The book of John is so full of irony. And that's a picture of irony. Just like Caiaphas in the chapter before said, you guys know nothing at all. Don't you know that one man should die rather than a whole nation? It's better that one man die. And he's prophesying the sort of death that Christ would die. It's an irony that they're saying this. Can you believe all the nations are going after him? Sure enough. And we're on the receiving end of that as we sit here this morning. That the nations, in fact, are going to Christ. The verses after that, we're not going to read this morning. Verses 20 on show a picture of Philip leading the Greeks to Jesus. You bet this is an important moment where Christ is being offered to the nations. Now, three so what thoughts on the triumphal entry. I told you I wasn't going to have three tidy applications, three steps to happy marriage. It's going to be so what thoughts on this triumphal entry. We're going to sit here as worshipers, not as practitioners. We're going to enjoy this crisis just been revealed and consider three, three things that should hit us. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. This is the first of the three. Zechariah chapter 9, you'll, you'll find familiar because we just read it. In John chapter 12, but verse 10 is where I'm going to focus. But for the sake of context, we'll start in verse 9. Verse 
the first application or the first so what thought is that this celebration is our celebration. It happened 2,000 years ago in a place that many of us have never even stepped foot. But this cry that these people made this day, Oh, save! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That's our cry. This Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, is our celebration. That's the first point. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O crossways, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. O daughters of Greenville. O crossways people that are crossways with our God. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Listen to these next verses, these next lines. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, even Greenville, Texas. That's why this celebration is our celebration. It's because it extends from sea to sea. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Being part of the people of God, Gentiles, that's what we are. Being part of the people of God doesn't add value to your life. That's where many of us are. We kind of get our Jesus on and we think that that life's just going to be better. It's kind of a value-adding benefit. And the reality is it doesn't add value to your life, Gentiles. It is the value to our life. It's the whole value of our life. That we are His. That before he, we ever spoke, before we ever thought, before we ever were even, before our heart even beat, that he knew us and we had an appointment with him to be one of his people. That's scandalous. This celebration is our celebration. We're shouting, Hosanna! Oh, save! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from sea to sea, picking up Gentiles like me and you. My older brother, Mark, has a son named J.D. And um, one of the funniest stories, it still cracks me up every time I think about it. One of the funniest stories he's ever told me. He was riding with J.D. in a car for a long time. And uh, he had one of those teachable moments with J.D. You know, you're in a car with somebody, you're going to have teaching time. J.D.'s six years old at this time. Six-ish. And... um, he has one of those teachable moments, and he goes into this long explanation about a life matter, you know, something that really is going to matter, that is part of training up a young man, you know. So he's thinking, man, he's getting this. He's not distracted. He seems like he's just hanging on every word. J.D., after my brother developed the whole thought, J.D. says, hey, uh, Dad? He says, yes, son. He's thinking, you know, he's, he's really processed this. He's going to have some sort of reflective thought or question. He said, Dad, yes, son. Dad, did you know my Buzz Lightyear glows in the dark? (laughs) That has gone down in McGraw history as embodying the mind of a child in a lot of ways. We think we're getting through, and sometimes we have a rude awakening that we haven't connected because the kids are so distracted with the trivial. As I prepared this point this morning, 
I thought, man, I hope we're not thinking about Buzz Lightyear. I hope we're not thinking about insert X. I don't care. Insert whatever you want to in there. Compared to this truth, it's Buzz Lightyear glowing in the dark. That's right. It's like, it's a, it's, it is a laugh. This truth is the sort of thing that should change Monday to Saturday. Oh, man, I'm a part of the people of God. What a scandal, that the, a good scandal, that the gospel reached from sea to sea and from nation to nation and gathered up the likes of me. First, it's a celebration that's our celebration. Secondly, it's a contrary celebration. This Christ, as he enters Jerusalem this day, as we really take in what he did, foot dragging, as he's riding his donkey's colt into Jerusalem, we find that he's a contrary king and his deliverance is contrary. His deliverance may not be what we're after. We could be guilty of the same thing that the Jews are guilty of right here. You can imagine if somebody lived in your home or lived in this state and they owned everything and we had to ask permission to do anything and we were under the oppression of some sort of um, regime that we'd be praying for a deliverer and we'd feel like we're praying rightfully for this deliverer. Yet Jesus shows up and says, I'm not that kind of deliverer. I'm going to ride a donkey's colt to show you and I'm going to weep for you because you're focused on the wrong things. We can be guilty of expecting all the wrong things from God. Deliverance from every temporal discomfort. <laughs> every little bitty trial. Oh, God, deliver me. That's the kind of God I've got. And that's the kind of follower I am. And be just like Israel. Like Israel bearing the palm branch and looking for a political messiah that would liberate them from Rome? We can bear the flag and look to Washington or Austin or downtown Greenville. Most Christians wouldn't be guilty of that, though, looking to D.C. or Austin or downtown Greenville for happiness, but we might be guilty of this, where we look to God to make up what's lacking in D.C. or Austin or the courthouse in Greenville. Lord, make up their deficiencies. And that becomes our burden. That becomes why we're pursuing Him and what we're after in Him. And that's no different from, from Israel. And Jesus wept over that. That's not the kind of Savior that He is. We may think, <laughs> listen to this, we may think that cheap, high-quality medical care, <laughs> that's hard to imagine, cheap, high-quality medical care, Low unemployment, a healthy economy, are pictures of blessing and deliverance by God. We may think those things and assume those things, but what we should realize from this is that Christ shows us He's a Savior of a different sort. That for the people of God, whether we're in peace or whether we're in world war, we're blessed. For the people of God, whether we have plenty or whether we have nothing and are flat broke, we're blessed. We're standing beside the road shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whether free or slave, we're blessed. Whether well or dying, we're blessed. Now hear me say this. Unemployment, Social Security, the war, things like that, those are problems. 
I don't want to make little of those. I'm not making little of them because that's invaded a lot of our lives. Chances are we're not uh, strangers to any of those issues. They are problems, but they are not our real problem. They are not our real problem, daughters. We're crossways with the one that made us. And there's only one solution to that. And that was achieved and finished by the work of this one who entered Jerusalem with his feet dragging on a donkey's colt. That's what we need to get and appreciate. That this was a contrary celebration. Enjoying a contrary king. He wept for Israel because they celebrated him for all the wrong reasons. You can shout, Hosanna, blessed is he, for all the wrong reasons. The third thing that I encourage you to consider is that this is a taste of things to come. The first was that this is, a, um, this is our celebration. The second is that it's a contrary celebration. And the third is that it's a taste of things to come. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Don't be afraid of Revelation. It is, uh, it is a very mysterious book. It's one that we've dined on as a people the last couple of years on Wednesday nights. And God has shown us a robust picture of what it means to believe in Him through this book. He's, shown us, he's also shown us a robust picture of what the people of God look like. If we're going to let this book define what the people of God should look like, we've learned a lot from Revelation. But let me show you this glimpse of what's in store for the people of God in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. This is why I want you to know this is our celebration. The one that took place 2,000 years ago is a little taste of what's in store, where you and I will have a palm branch in our hand. Listen. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from sea to sea, from the ends of the earth, from Greenville, Texas, from every nation, from all tribes, from Kazakhstan, from Africa, from Japan, from China, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in our hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're not crying, oh, save anymore. Because it's a done deal at this point. Salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And, to all, and all the angels. Let's look at what the angels, how they responded to this moment. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's a taste of what's in store for the people of God with our palm branches in hand. Now, Revelation chapter 19. Here's a taste of what's in store for what we're going to see in our King and our High Priest and our Savior. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. (laughs) Listen to this. Have the image of him riding the donkey's colt with his feet dragging, weeping, 
with his disciples with a look on their face like, Come on, Jesus, you're a goober. Get off the colt. Envision him coming into Jerusalem like that, humble and lowly. And now contrast it with this at the end of the age. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Where's the donkey's colt? Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, I don't know if we'll be part of that. I know there's going to be legion covering Armageddon or wherever. Legion. The armies of God, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know if we're going to be part of the legion of army soldiers and troops, but I could imagine these guys are out there like Braveheart, you know. Got their battle cry on, faces all painted up, dreadlock looking hair. We're going into combat. And turns out we think we're going to be there doing battle, and it turns out we're just cheerleaders. Ugly cheerleaders with painted faces. Because he just wants to be there whenever he destroys the nations that did not bear the palm branch rightly. When he destroys the nations that were not the daughters reconciled. When he destroys those who did not bow to the rightful king. Where he makes all things right. And he makes the crooked straight. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this picture of Christ. Lord, I pray that you will re-engineer and redesign in a biblical truth-fed way our understanding of this Jesus. Lord, I pray that we are looking to him as the right sort of king. I pray that we're not looking for a king that delivers from all discomforts, but a king that actually makes daughters reconciled with you. Pray that we see that as both of our, our, our greatest problem and our greatest joy in that you've achieved that reconciliation. Lord, I pray that we're part of the celebration now singing Hosanna. And Lord, as the people of God, we look forward to when we will say salvation belongs to you. Thank you for this robust, manly, awesome picture of who you are. We pray these things this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let's worship.